Well, good morning. Wonderful to see you all. Oh, good. Uh, let me ask if you would to join me in turning your Bibles uh, to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 10. Uh, we are continuing our, our study in the book of Acts, and uh, we are currently in some of the events uh, happening in Peter's ministry. Uh, and if you left, remember last time, uh, we, we left off in what I think we could probably describe as an uncomfortable place for Peter to be, uh, because he was left at the home of Simon, who was a tanner. Uh, and I know there's some cultural distance between us and Peter, but needless to say, uh, for a Jewish person with Peter's upbringing, staying at the home of a tanner just would have been icky. Like, uh, they worked with dead animals, and just the smell itself uh, would have been hard things for Peter to just overlook. And yet, as many of us know, uh, God often uses uncomfortable places in our lives to help us grow. You know, sometimes God moves us out of our comfort zone, and in doing so, we actually find ourselves closer uh, to him and where his heart is at. Um, and for Peter, that meant God was stretching his heart in areas of just being gracious and, and overcoming some of those legalistic attitudes that he had, you know, grown up with. And I hope you've sort of read ahead. I ask you to read ahead a little bit. I hope you continue to do that. But I hope you read ahead today because we have a lot to cover this morning in our passage. We're going to do the entire chapter 10 this morning. I'm going to summarize some parts of it. But just to get ourselves sort of ready to hear this morning, I want to read the part of the passage this morning that really gets to the heart of what I think this passage is all about. So Acts chapter 10, we're going to begin reading in verse 34. It says there, and so Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked they ask him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Father God, 
Lord, we just ask that you would have our attention this morning. That, Lord, as we sit here and we listen to your word and we listen to the words I've prepared, that, Lord, that, Lord you would be the one who speaks to us. That, Lord, our, we would just be wrapped uh, with your Holy Spirit speaking truth into our lives. And that, Lord, we would have just a hunger and a desire to hear from you this morning, uh, praying that our lives would, would be transformed and changed by the hearing of, of your word this morning. And just as you cause Peter to be stretched and, and, and to grow, that, Lord, you would cause the same thing in our own hearts this morning. And in doing so, that, Lord, we would find ourselves closer to your heart as well. Lord, we just ask that you would be with us in a special way, that you would send your Holy Spirit to be among us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, this morning as we begin, uh, what I want to do is I really just want to tell you a story. Uh, so this is maybe going to be a little less outline-y a sermon this morning than I usually preach, but the good news is that it's a great story. In fact, it's, a, it's an amazing story. It's a story with you know, all of those elements of a story that we love. There's suspense and mystery and action and redemption and, and so much more. You might even call this one of the chapters of the greatest story ever told. But maybe most importantly of all is that this story is one that has actually touched each and every one of our lives. The story we're hearing today is actually part of our story of salvation. It's my story and it's part of your story. And the story begins for us in Acts 10, in verse 1, where it says, at, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Uh, that's Luke's way of really just saying, once upon a time, there was a man named Cornelius. And Cornelius was a Roman citizen. Uh, and not just a Roman citizen, he was a Roman soldier. In fact, he wasn't just a Roman soldier, he was a Roman officer. He was a centurion, of, and we're told of the Italian cohort, which means that he was part of an army that was made up of men who were originally from Italy itself. They were the heart, from the heart of the empire, and they were known for being the troops that were most loyal to Rome. So here's this man. Get the, get the picture of, of who he is here. He had a good job. He had a position of authority. He had a nice house, good wage, good family. Pretty much, Cornelius had pretty much everything that a person could kind of aspire to have. And yet, as we're about to learn, inside of him there was still an emptiness. Inside of him, despite of all that he had, there was still something unfulfilled that nothing he had found so far in life could satisfy. So we're told that somewhere along the journey of his life, Cornelius actually turned his back on the pantheon of false gods that the Romans worshipped, and he began to seek the one true God. Just as verse 2 continues, saying, He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. And as you hear those words, you would think, you know, if you knew Cornelius personally, you would probably think, wow, there is, that's one super religious guy. I mean, he is just, he's doing all of this churchy kind of stuff. He's, he's giving money to charities. He's helping people. He's praying all the time. 
Now, J. Vernon McGee says in his often tongue-in-cheek way, he says, in America today, he would pass for a Christian. In fact, a Christian of the highest degree, an outstanding man. And yet, sadly for Cornelius, he still wasn't a believer. He had still not sort of yet taken hold of the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ in his life. In fact, as we're about to hear, he's never even heard the gospel. And there's a danger here, I think, for any one of us in confusing being religious with being a Christian. And Ray Stedman says it well about this verse. He says, you will notice that the Holy Spirit very clearly is underlining for us this very important fact. Here's a man who is religious, devout, sincere, earnest, and prayerful, but he's not yet saved. And there's a lot of people like Cornelius around today, the religious but lost. People who think that just going through the motions or just being sincere is, is all that God expects of us. But those people are just substituting either religious rituals or spiritual activity for an actual relationship with the living God. And some people are content to stay that way. But not Cornelius. You see, Cornelius didn't want to just look spiritual on the outside. He wanted God to transform his life on the inside. So one day, probably while he was having his afternoon prayers, God sent an angel to tell Cornelius that his prayers had been heard and that he should send uh, someone to fetch a man called Peter who was in Joppa. About a, it was a town about 20 miles away from, from Caesarea. And God even gives him an address. Verse 6 says, He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And that's what Cornelius does. He sends two servants and a soldier out to, to fetch Peter. And from there, this should have been a very sort of straightforward passage. You know, Cornelius needs to hear the gospel. Peter shows up, preaches the gospel. End of story. Except we see there's one little hitch. Because God still had to work in Peter's heart to get Peter to a place where he was actually ready to share the gospel with a Gentile. Because historically speaking, I'm not sure I can even emphasize enough the sort of cultural divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles at that time. Because to a Jewish person, a Gentile, and a Gentile was anyone who wasn't Jewish, Gentiles were sort of, they were looked upon as some of the sort of great unwashed dregs of humanity. They were sort of outsiders. They were the scum of the earth. They were the deplorables. They were unclean and unwanted and undesirable. It was said that if a Jewish person was traveling outside the land of the Israel, when they returned, they were to shake off the dust of their sandals just in case some of the Gentile dirt would cause Israel to be unclean. Jewish people wouldn't sit down and eat with the Gentiles. They, they wouldn't spend the night at a Gentile's house. They wouldn't even sort of have a chat or a casual conversation in the streets. If a Jewish person needed to buy something from a Gentile merchant, they would have to go home and wash that item before they were allowed to use it, just to get the Gentile germs off it. And make no mistake, the church in the book of Acts up to this point 
was Jewish. It had Jewish roots. It had Jewish culture. It had Jewish sensibilities. So for the Jews in the early church, the question was never really, what must a Gentile do to be saved? The question was really, could a Gentile, just by being the nature of being a Gentile, could they even be saved? And make no mistake, Peter was Jewish. He had all of that stuff going on in his heart. And while God had already been sort of working in Peter's heart, stretching him in new ways, tearing down old assumptions, working on him, helping him let go of some of those legalistic attitudes, trying to get him to open the door of grace in his heart to others. So he's doing it the home of Simon with all of that icky stuff around. When it came to the idea of actually preaching salvation to the Gentiles, there was still more stretching that needed to happen. So God gets to work in our passage doing just that. As it continues in verse 9, we read the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down from its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and the birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And yeah, I don't know if you've ever fallen asleep when you were hungry, but weird things can happen. <laughs> like it just, it's like, it's, you know, the old joke about the guy who went, you know, to bed hungry, he had a dream, he ate the world's largest pillow, and, or marshmallow, and he woke up, his pillow was gone. Did you hear that one? <laughs> Here's Peter, he's thinking about food already. He's already hungry. And he has this dream, and it's a weird dream. But it's not just any dream. This is a dream where, that God himself has sent, and where God himself is trying to speak to Peter. And this sort of heavenly tablecloth comes down from the sky and all of these animals are, are walking around on it. There's chickens and pigs and ducks and salamanders and lions and tigers and bears and you know, maybe a llama or two. It's, a real, it's very old McDonald-like. You know, there's a moo-moo here, there's a cluck-cluck there. Everywhere there was a something or other. And God says to Peter, Peter, you're so hungry. Eat. Have something to eat. I mean, Peter, here's a nice pig. How about some crispy bacon? And most of us would think, bacon. We love bacon. Bacon, we, it's the food that makes other food better. You know it. But here's the thing. For Peter, that would have been unthinkable. Peter, even as a Christian, had retained his Jewish culture, which meant there's a whole host of things, not just pig, but it's a whole host of things that Peter just could not eat. Things that were not on the menu. Things that in his mind were unclean and would make him unclean. So when Peter is told to eat, he gives the good Jewish response. Verse 14, but Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I have never, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter says, nope, no thanks. And to be fair, I don't think we can sort of even appreciate Peter's revulsion at what he must have seen. I'm you know, I'm a picky eater myself. I feel his pain in this moment. Because for Peter, this was not just sort of polite refusal. This is probably stuff that would trigger a gag reflex just for him thinking about it. 
So from a cultural point of view and even a personal point of view, Peter gives the right answer. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, Peter misses the mark. Because I'm going to give you a fairly simple rule of thumb to live by, which is this. If God tells you to do something, you do it. You know, God doesn't play tricks on people. God is not going to ask you to do something, and then if you do it, God's going to be like, wow, dude, I can't believe you fell for that. No, God never leads us wrong. If it's from God, it's the right thing to do. Even if that thing takes us out of our comfort zones, we are to obey. So God goes back to Peter, and he gives him a second and a third chance. Verse 15 So then the voice came to him again the second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And then the thing was taken up once again into heaven. And it honestly makes me think that God dealing with Peter is kind of like trying to get your three-year-old to eat broccoli. I mean, you say, eat it, it's good for you. They say, no. And you say, there's nothing wrong with it, eat it. And they say, no. And you're like, it looks like a little tree. No. <laughs> so he's just like, so you give them jello. You just give up. You're a parent. You don't have much energy left. But with that, the vision ends three times. And then Peter wakes up. So here's Peter. He's still on the roof. He's still hungry. He's left thinking to himself about this dream because he knows God has just spoken to him. But he doesn't, doesn't have any idea quite what it means yet. But he didn't have to wait long for an answer. In fact, the answer walked right up to his door and knocked in the form of three unclean Gentiles that Cornelius had sent his way. Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiries for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter pondered the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And you know, seeing three Gentiles at his door, Peter's, again, his gut response must have been, send them away. They're Gentiles. Get them out of here. We don't need that kind of trouble. Those guys are unclean. But after that vision, Peter remembers God's words, what God has made clean. Do not call it uncommon. So Peter thinks twice. I think it finally sinks through that if God has sent them, who is Peter to send them away? So Peter does something. And it may not sound quite as crazy as it is, but it is truly radical. What Peter does is something crazy, something at that time would have been completely unheard of. Peter invites these Gentile men into the house to be his guests. And then verse 23 continues, the next day he rose and he went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied them. So Peter not only invites these men in, he actually travels with them as a companion He doesn't give them the old, you know what, you go ahead, I'll meet you there. Peter's willing to be seen with them. He's willing to be in their company. He's willing to be with Gentiles in their presence. Again, you can't realize how radical that is. I mean, do you remember how much trouble Jesus got into when he hung out with sinners? 
Most people will say, yeah, but at least those were Jewish sinners. Peter is like, he's way out of bounds on what most people, even people in the church at that time, would deem acceptable. Peter even says in his own words later in verse 28, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. And again, I just want you to appreciate how hard this would have been for Peter. It's something I, call, I would call greet your teeth obedience. Like when you tell your kid to do something and they're like, I'll do it, but I'm not going to like it. Because sometimes obedience to God's will is, is, is tough. Sometimes it's, it's hard to surrender to those places that God is working in your heart that he wants to change. Sometimes it's difficult to let go of old assumptions. Sometimes old prejudices just don't die quickly. And sometimes offering grace and forgiveness to others means a radical abandonment of your own cultural biases. And I want to just pause here for a moment. Because as I was going through this passage this week, I realized we are living in a time right now where that lesson may be one of the most important lessons we can learn as a church. That just as the Holy Spirit was rooting out prejudice in Peter's heart, he may be doing the same in the hearts of some churches today. Charles Swindoll put it like this. He says, For all of our many differences, such as race, creed, culture, gender, and nationality, people all over the world have at least one thing in common. Prejudice. It's a stubborn, thorny weed that grows in every heart and draws nourishment from the rotting compost of our fallen sinful nature. Cut it to the ground, poison its leaves, or pull it out by the roots, and it'll be back before you know it. The creeping infestation of prejudice can happen so gradually it goes unnoticed. And it takes hold in unexpected ways. We're familiar with the most common variety, racial prejudice. Some nurture a, a secret bigotry against people with a certain colors of skin or specific nationalities or different cultures or even particular accents. Other types of prejudice may be more subtle. Political affiliation, economic stratum, marital status, religious background, the presence of tattoos, style of clothes or hair, or even the use of cosmetics. It's a universal problem. And your prejudices might not be my prejudice, but some form of it tries to grow in every heart. Even Peter, the, the hero of the Jerusalem congregation and arguably the most courageous Christian in the first two decades of the church, struggled with prejudice. And then he concludes saying, fortunately for Peter and the church, the Lord would not let that sinful attitude remain. And he would soon uproot it. And of course, things still aren't perfect. You know, as a church and as individuals, we can still struggle with reaching out to people that are different. There are times that we still find ourselves excluding people for the wrong reasons. There are still prejudices that exist in our lives and in our churches. I can tell you that we live in a society that is right now more divided than I can remember at any point in my lifetime. You know, we have the rise of identity politics we have individuals who are identifying with one people group or another, and they just seem to be going at war with each other. 
whether it's over sex or sexual orientation or race or religion or gender, it feels like battle lines have been drawn. And there seems to be no common ground between these people. You know, tolerance for people who are different has been thrown out the, wor- the window in our world today. And they just, they can't accept each other. They can't be friends. They, they would rather try to cancel each other than have a conversation. And there's lots of hate to go around. But the Bible is clear that the solution to prejudice, the solution to what divides us and separates us from our fellow man is found in Christ and the gospel. Because one thing the gospel does is it speaks so clearly about the value of each and every individual. It speaks to the dignity of every person. It speaks about the worth of every soul which is reflected in the cross of Christ himself. And we as humanity, we are not only reconciled to God through the cross, but we are reconciled to each other in Christ. Just as Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is a male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that is a message the world needs to hear today if we truly desire reconciliation. And I think that just begins when we begin offering people who are different than us respect It begins when we begin to recognize that even that person I disagree with has been created in the image of God and that they have a value in and of themselves. And we see that sort of beginning to happen in our passage, believe it or not. We see the beginning of those walls of prejudice being torn down between a Jew and a Gentile. As verse 24 continues, the following day they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them. And he had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And I really love this moment when these two guys meet. Now, Peter and Cornelius were very different people. Cornelius was wealthy and a Gentile and a military man. Peter was a poor Jewish fisherman turned pastor. And yet here the, the one who's greater in the eyes of the world bows down to the lesser, but Peter wouldn't have any of it. And I like what John Stott says about this moment. He said, Peter refused to be treated by Cornelius as if he was a god, and Peter refused to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. They were just two men meeting who were both created in the image of God. And that place of humility and that place of respect for one another is the right place to begin sharing the gospel. In fact, I love what Billy Graham used to say. He said, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And as Cornelius gets up from the floor, Peter realizes that Cornelius isn't the only one who is hungry for the truth. Because inside of his house, Peter finds this great sort of mass of people who have gathered. You know, Cornelius was so excited about Peter's visit that he'd called all of his friends and family to join him. And after some explaining, Peter finally realizes what it is that God had sent him there to do. Even more than that, I think Peter finally truly understands the words of Jesus himself. Where back in Acts 1 verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. Because the truth about Jesus was not a message that God wanted to keep just a few select individuals or groups. It was to be good news of great joy for all people. The gospel is to be shared with anyone and everyone who would listen. Even if those people were Gentiles. So Peter begins to speak. And he tells the people that were gathered there about Jesus. And Peter, he does something very wise here, I think. He keeps his message very simple. You know, there's people, they didn't have a lot of real background in Jewish law or history or the prophets. They didn't understand, you know, the layers of Jewish tradition around the Messiah. So, you know, Peter doesn't get into a real detailed history of Israel. He doesn't, you know, go back and talk about the patriarchs or Moses. He doesn't use a lot of flower, religious-sounding language because, you know, Cornelius and his family, they didn't need a lot of holy church talk. They didn't need a doctoral dissertation on the matters of soteriology from a Near Eastern perspective. What they needed to hear was the good news. That Jesus had come and he had died for them. And that's what he does. He tells the people about Jesus. Tells them about his baptism and his ministry. He tells them about his wonderful deeds and the miracles. He tells them about his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And then he ends with those beautiful words of verse 43. He tells them that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And you know, with those words, Peter, I mean, he, just, he swept away centuries of prejudice and racism that existed. With those words, a wall of bias and exclusion was torn down. With those words, salvation was now offered to the Gentiles. And look what happens, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And this is what some have called the Pentecost of the Gentiles. Because, you know, the Holy Spirit comes upon the Jewish believers at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But then in Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit falls upon the Samaritan believers. And now here in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit comes to rest on us, the Gentiles. And, and the people there are swept up in that excitement. And they're, they're singing and they're praising and they're thanking and glorifying God. Because now they understand that when Peter says... Everyone who believes will be forgiven. They know, know that everyone means everyone and anyone. The people now know that that included them. They, now they knew that salvation truly was for all people. And they knew that this was the answer that they had been looking for in their lives for so long. And Peter just takes it all in. And he sees the Holy Spirit moving on the Gentiles. And he sees that there was no difference in God's you know, acceptance and his response to the salvation between the Jews and the Gentiles. So Peter takes the people the rest of the way. And Peter says, verse 47, Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. And you know, by offering 
these Gentiles' baptism implies that Peter was willing to fully accept these people, these Gentiles, as fellow followers of Jesus Christ. It means that Gentiles were now to be recognized as a part of the church. And it meant that now no one was excluded from the kingdom of God. Because that's the good news of the gospel. And yet, not everyone's going to be happy about that. I mean, they're going to call Peter back to Jerusalem, and he has to give an account of what happened. And it was probably kind of like, Peter, what were you thinking kind of moments. But we'll talk about that next time. But for now, it's enough to know that Peter, he doesn't back down. And even though this was personally difficult, Peter ensures that grace prevails. And the church has never been the same since. And that really brings us to our final lesson this morning from our passage. And that's just God is in the business of saving people. That's his desire. That's his purpose. That is his mission. God is a God who seeks out the lost, who pursues those who need to be found. He's a God who makes himself known to all who would call upon his name. You see, God wants people saved. And it doesn't matter if they were born into the right family. It doesn't matter, you know, what nationality they are. It doesn't matter what they've done in the past. No one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. And anyone can know salvation if they will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And God uses people. He uses the church to make that truth known. Because, you know, I kind of found myself asking the question as I read our passage this week, why didn't the angel who showed up before Cornelius just tell him the gospel? I mean, he was right there. He's like, send for Peter. He's going to, why didn't he just say it? Cornelius, this is what you need to know, believe. Well, do you know why the angel didn't tell Cornelius? Because it wasn't the angel's job. Sharing the gospel is our job. It's the church's job. It's the believer's job. It's what we have been called to do. Even if it stretches us. Even if pursuing that makes us uncomfortable. Even if it's inconvenient. We are the ones who are called to be witnesses. We are the ones who share the good news. We are the ones who are now continuing the story of grace and reconciliation that began all those years ago. We are the ones that Jesus is now telling to go. And that means that now you are the missionary. That means that you have a mission field all of your own. And that there's people in your life right now that's a good chance that only you know. People that maybe only you can reach with this good news. People that only you might have the opportunity to share the good news with. So the question I ask is, will you join Peter in taking the risk and stepping out of that comfort zone and telling those people about Jesus? Because that's our call. And it matters because Peter's words are still true today that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be forgiven and saved. Let's pray. Father God, we live today in a world of turmoil. And yet in this world, Lord, you are our peace. We live in a world of division and that, Lord, you are our reconciliation. And Lord, we live in a world of lost people. But you are our salvation. And that is the good news. In fact, 
That's what the angel showed up to pronounce that very first Christmas, that this is good news of great joy that will be for all people. All people everywhere. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage as your people, that Lord, we would take the risk to reach out to the people around us, that we would step out of our comfort zones, that we would have compassion on the lost, and that, Lord, we would have compassion on even those people that are different from ourselves. And that, Lord, we would treat those people with love. We would treat them with respect. We would treat every person we meet with the dignity that comes from knowing they were created in the image of God. And that they too are a reason that Jesus went to the cross to die. Lord, I pray that as Christians we could show this world a better way. And that through our example and through the way we live in relation to, to others, that Lord, that in those, in those places we would have an opportunity to share the good news of our Savior. That we would tell the world that Jesus who is the Son of God, came to this earth, that he died on the cross to pay for the sins of all humanity, and he rose again on the third day to offer us forgiveness and life eternal. And Lord, I pray that that truth would be on our lips everywhere we go as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.